Hello, this is Stephen from the Japan Distilled Podcast, and I wanted to tell you about something that's quite exciting coming up, and that is KojiCon, February 22nd to March 7th. This is an online conference to expand your flavor making horizons, a virtual gathering of mold based fermentation experts sharing the knowledge you need to create delicious food and drinks. And I'll be one of the speakers talking about Japanese beverage fermentation. For more information, visit kojikon.org, K O J I C O N.org, or you can find them on Instagram at koji.com. Please tune in. To give in. Sometimes that's the only way to begin. Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way. Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, coming to you from my hovel in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we like our whiskey highballs sans fruit. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for more than a decade, and we're excited to share them with you through this podcast. This is our second in a three-part series on Japanese whiskey. Last time, we talked a little bit about the history of Japanese whiskey and how that evolved into what it is today. Today, we'll discuss what's happened in the past decade or two and how Japan so quickly moved to the head of the class in world whiskies. And next time, in the final episode, we'll finish this up with a discussion of uniquely Japanese expressions of whiskey. Please download and subscribe to the Japan Distilled Podcast on your preferred podcast app, or you can download episodes directly from our website, japandistilled.com. Steven, how you doing? What are you... Steven? What are you doing? Oh. How are you, Christopher? Sorry, I was uh, making myself a little highball. I figured if uh, <laughs> we're talking whiskeys, I should have a drink. Little... You're going to put rocks in there? Yeah. It's uh, about, as, as prescribed, I chilled the glass, lots of ice, uh, one part whiskey, three part soda. Nice. Nice. Hmm. No lemon. Yeah, that hits the spot after a long day. No no fruit, no lemon, no lime, no nothing. Just whiskey and soda. Respect. And and ice, filtered water ice. Not clear ice, but filtered is enough. But I'm I'm doing well. I'm enjoying this. Uh it's funny, I think if people want to know what's coming up on our podcast, I just have to pay attention to my Instagram and my Twitter because I'm doing the research and I'm <laughs> writing about it a little bit. And so Yep. Yeah, it, it kind of, it it seeps into a lot of the other things we do. Yeah, we've got, you know, things we talk about on the phone during the mornings tend to evolve in our thinking during the afternoon. And by the nighttime, we're like, we should probably work that into our Instagram tomorrow or something like that. So yeah, <laughs> there's, uh, if you're privy to any part of those conversations, you can often, um, you know, you can probably place a pretty solid wager on what's coming next. Absolutely. So last time we talked about the history of Japanese whiskey, and that led us right up to, of course, the bubble crash, the whole quote unquote lost decade, you know, the stagnation that stalled the Japanese economy. And, you know, how 
did Japanese whiskey make a comeback after all of that? It's a fascinating story, I think. It really starts overseas. And I guess we should start that discussion in 2001. Just to remind people, I think we talked about it during the last episode, but the absolute nadir of Japanese whiskey sales in recent history was in 2007, when whiskey sales in Japan were just 20% of the peak sales of 1983. So there'd been an absolute crash in the Japanese whiskey market. Everybody had moved on to sake and shochu and beer and wine and anything else they could drink, and nobody was drinking whiskey. Like 20% of the volume of 20 years before is just... Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. A, it was a big, big loss for the industry. and. Yet, it was during that time when the sales were lagging, but it was in 2001 when the glass ceiling or glass floor, a whiskey glass, a dam, a dram broke, something broke. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there was a 10-year-old Yoichi whiskey from Nika Distillery in Hokkaido that won best of the best in an international blind tasting for Whiskey Magazine in the UK. I mean, that's just mind-boggling that a Japanese whiskey out of nowhere, a 10-year-old wins best of the best in the UK. Yeah, that's nuts. It turned out it wasn't a fluke. In 2003, so two years later, Yamazaki 12, which anybody who enjoys their Japanese whiskey knows and loves, won gold at the International Spirits Challenge. 2004, just the next year, Hibiki 30 wins the overall competition at the International Spirits Challenge. And then in 2005, the Yamazaki 18 wins double gold at the San Francisco Spirits Competition. Right, right. There were so many really heavy-hitting expressions there all in a row. Yeah, and that I remember back to that point. That's when people started to ask me, like, yo, what's this all about? Is this, is this really a thing? Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, those are top-level competitions. And so that's 2003, 4, 5 when these awards start coming in. But everything goes sideways in the whiskey world in 2008. And that's at the World Whiskies Awards in Glasgow, Scotland, when a Yoichi 1987 was named the best single malt in the world. And Hibiki 30 wins the world's best blended whiskey. Hmm. So they take home two of the best whiskey awards in Scotland. Yep. And actually a Japanese blend has won an award in the blended category every single year since 2008. In fact, the, even with the single malts, the best single malt in the world has now gone to the Yamazaki 1984 in 2011, uh, the Yamazaki 25 in 2012. What's really fascinating to me is in 2018 and 2020, the same whiskey won the best single malt in the world, Hakushi 25. That's <laughs> just insane. And For those keeping score at home, for five of the past 13 years, a Japanese single malt has won the best single malt in the world against all the other single malts, everything from Scotland, any place else that's making single malt style. Japan has won the top, the best single malt five years out of the past 13. So that's a heck of a track record given the number of distilleries, because we're talking about a handful of distilleries in Japan. We're talking 120 distilleries in Scotland, right? Yeah. And the capper for me in all of this, though, is in 2017, the best single cask in the world at the World Whiskey Awards went to Chichibu's Whiskey 2017 Matsuri Cask Bottling. They opened their doors in 2008. They won best single cask in 2017. That's absolutely remarkable. As, yeah, one decade. Yeah. It's, it's really That's amazing. Cra- that is crazy. So is there, is there any sign of all of this 
momentum or all of this just winning trophies? Is this going to slow down at any point? What's going on? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, in the past five years, Japanese makers have averaged three world's best selections at the World Whiskey Awards, and they only compete in six categories. So they're winning half of the entries that they submit, Hmm. which is, well, not half of the entries they submit, half of the categories that they're submitting into are being won by Japanese whiskeys year over year for the last five years. Jeez. And you're talking about almost all of these expressions are from four distilleries. I mean, you've got, well, not four distilleries, four companies. You've got Suntory, which has Yamazaki and Hakushu. And uh, then you've got Nika, which has Yoichi and Miyaki. What is that? How do you pronounce that? Miyagi-kyo? Miyagi-kyo. That's it. Yes. Miyagi-kyo. So that's two distilleries for Suntory, two distilleries for Nika. Then you've got uh, Fuji from Kirin, and you've got Chichibu. Right. So those four distilleries have been racking up these awards just year after year, and it's just, it's pretty remarkable. Huh. What's funny to me is it took Japanese consumers a lot longer to catch on. Like, remember 2007 was the nadir. So six years after the first of those big awards started to come in was when it hit rock bottom. So you have this really strange contrast for the distilleries. If you think about it, they are like raking in metals overseas and yet they can't give this stuff away domestically. And so unfortunately for all of us who love fine drinks, the distilleries were working on skeleton crews. They were distilling maybe one day a week. They weren't making enough product to meet what turned out to be enormous demand. And unlike other spirits, which you can make them and sell them relatively quickly, like you can make a gin, a vodka, even a white rum, shochu, awamori, you can make some of these drinks pretty quickly and get them to market to meet demand, you know, within what, a few months to a year. With whiskey, it takes time, right? To get these really, really beautiful expressions that were winning the awards, you need to let it sit in those barrels in that warehouse for for sometimes decades. And they weren't making enough of it to meet the demand of today. And that's why the, the Yamazaki 12 and the Hakushu 12, as well as some of these others, uh, the age statement Japanese whiskeys had all disappeared from the US and EU markets a few years ago. Mm. Now that it was just announced that some of them are coming back, which is great news for all of us, but I can imagine how hard it's going to be to get and how much it's going to cost compared to what it used to cost. Getting back to the Japanese domestic market, that all does turn around, but it doesn't turn around because of these premium whiskeys and all of these awards. Because I think, Christopher, you can attest to this as well. Japanese tend to be pretty price sensitive when it comes to their alcohol. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, a beer is what, in an izakaya, what are we paying for a draft beer? 400, 500, 600 yen, maybe down here in Kyushu, it might be a little higher in Tokyo. Yeah, that's, it's, it's pretty fair. But a whiskey highball is actually cheaper because tax is lower on whiskey than it's on beer, which doesn't make any sense to me. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yep. Yep. <laughs> neither here nor there. But what happened in the 2000s, in the late 2000s, uh, Suntory, they were doing a little bit of their market research. They were looking into their, their books and they realized that there were two bars in Japan that were selling way more Suntory whiskey than any other bars in Japan. Right. It was one in Osaka and one in Tokyo. The one in Osaka is called Samboa. And the one in Tokyo is called Rockfish. Now, it turned out that the Rockfish owner had worked at Samboa. And Samboa's number one drink 
was uh, Suntory highballs or Kakubin highballs. They were doing whiskey soda, which is, of course, what I'm enjoying tonight. Uh-huh. And so the when the owner of Rockfish left and started his own bar, he started serving them. 90% of his drink sales were, were uh, Kakubin highballs. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's all he sold. But these two bars turned the light bulb on for Suntory. And within a couple of months, they've got television commercials with young Japanese actresses drinking highballs. Right. Now, everyone drinks highballs. I mean, highballs are ubiquitous now. And so, Japanese domestic demand has skyrocketed, not because of the awards, not the accolades, not by saying, oh, you have to try this Hibiki 30, which nobody can get their hands on. It's because of their very simple, easy drinking, blended whiskey, no age statement or anything, in a highball. And that's just kind of amazing how they turn themselves around that way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the highballs you go to bars now and there's actually a tap right next to the beer, you know, the draft beer tap that, and this other, this newer tap is actually dispensing, you know, ready to go highballs. It's just, they're ubiquitous and they're cheap too, which is kind of nice. I mean, you can, sometimes it's nice to, I'm not much of a highball drinker when I go out. There is this one place that you and I have been to, the standing bar in Tenmonkan, Kagoshima City. I often will have one there. He serves them in like this copper, this tempered copper cup. And mm. and it's a beautiful, really well-prepared highball that he, it takes him a couple of minutes to prepare it. Um, and I, I, I'm never more, pl- more happy with the start of my night when I'm drinking one of those. Um, but yeah, it's just... It's really become big and, you know, now you've got canned highballs everywhere you look. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's something that we're going to get into more in the future. But I, I, I got to say for me, one thing that really stuck out in terms of, um, you know, as someone who was living in Japan through most of that time that you described and all of the different awards and trophies and regalia, and you're right, it wasn't really pipping the radar over here, but the 2000, I think 15, um, when the Yamazaki Sherry cask was named whiskey of the year, that's when it really hit home for me because then people from all over the world were contacting me to try and get a hold of it. And I, I think it's like, I, I think I might have asked for you. Myself. Yeah, you did as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't even get a hold of that for myself. Um, I did, I did go out and look, that's for sure. But yeah, it was just immediately sucked up off of every shelf that it might've at one point populated and I, it was gone. It was, it vanished. It like, um, you know, like Kaiser Soze in, in that movie. Sure. Well, a lot of these, if you think about it are, especially when it's a single cask that, that it wins that there's only one barrel and sure it's, that's probably you know, two to 300 bottles, probably if depending on the size of the cask, it might be a little more, a little less, but it's not very much whiskey at all. So when it wins, you're never getting your hands on any because it's already all been sold. Some of the blended whiskeys and things that end up winning those, those do stick around a little bit. You can sometimes find bottles, but if it's a single cask, that's well gone by the time it's won the award. Yeah, fair enough. So the, obviously Japanese whiskey is kind of like it's perennial, perennially a favorite, is it not? And it's kind of like, 
it's kind of like whatever team LeBron James is playing for, Team Japan, whatever they've got on their roster is going to be solid. And it's been that way for, we're going close to two decades now. Um, Steven, do, what's your, do you have any optimism for what's coming in the future? I actually have a lot of optimism. I mean, I think in the next episode, we're going to talk about what the risks are because, you know, everybody wants to knock the, the champ off of his throne. Everybody wants to take down LeBron. And I'm sure everyone wants to take down at least all of the other whiskey makers would like to bring Japan down a notch or two. But what I'm excited about is there's so many new distilleries opening up. I mean, I already mentioned Chichibu. They opened in 2008 and they're now part of the old school crew. They're already winning awards. Yeah, they kind of are. Right. And people go nuts every time they have a new release. It's all over social media. People are super excited. And they actually started from a defunct distillery, uh, Ichiro Akuto, whose family actually owned an old sake brewery and had the Hanyu distillery. They were making whiskey since the, I believe, 1980. And they actually ended up going bankrupt in 2000. So they didn't survive the crash. But if you think about it, if the peak was 83, they started distilling in 80. Mm -hmm. Their first new make is coming out just as the market is tanking. So really, really terrible timing. They end up going out of business. He rescues the barrels. All the equipment's sold off. The building's torn down. There's The distillery's gone, unfortunately. But he rescues the barrels. And when he decides to open his own whiskey distillery, he starts doing uh, bottlings of those old casks. And he does it in a really clever way with what's now known as the card series. Oh, yeah. Where he made 52 different expressions and each of them was a playing card. And then he surprised everybody when he came out with a joker at the end, right? So there was actually 53 different playing cards. If you can get your hands on a single bottle of like an unopened bottle of, of the card series, it doesn't matter which, which card it is, it's worth a lot of money. Yeah. And a full set will sell for, I believe, I don't want to overspeak. It's definitely hundreds of thousands of dollars. I oh, think there yeah. might have been a full set going for over a million, but maybe we'll talk about like how crazy Japanese whiskey resale prices can be in the in a future episode. And we'll make sure we have our facts right because I'm not sure that those numbers are correct. But needless to say, the card series is an extremely valuable collector's item at this point. And here in Fukuoka, actually, they have an uh, annual event called uh, whiskey talk and at one of their events a few years ago they one of the bars as an after party opened all 52 bottles what <laughs> yep <clears throat> that was the after party you can imagine it was quite popular and the owner probably today wishes he had held on to them and retired yeah. <laughs> rather than than doing that <laughs> yeah but um but there was that was I guess the halcyon days of of Japanese whiskey before it became so expensive when you could just enjoy it for what it was and not think about what it's worth. Mm. Um, but anyway, I mean, Chichibu was just the first of these recent distilleries. Uh, Okayama opened in 2011. They're using a lot of local barley. I'm not sure what expressions they've released yet. Probably we'll talk about that on a future episode. The Nukata Distillery actually is owned by the makers of a Hitochino, Hitochino Nest beer, which I think a lot of our listeners are, are familiar with. Sure. And it was actually the beer brewing that got them interested because they were responsible for reviving an old heirloom uh, Japanese barley. And the owners 
started to wonder, I wonder what this would be like in a whiskey. Hmm. And so he decided to open a distillery. Uh, As you do. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's, he's got a successful sake brewery. He's got a successful beer brewery. He's got the money. He may as well make whiskey. Um, and also in 2016, Akeshi opened in Hokkaido. So it's actually the second whiskey distillery in Hokkaido after Nika. And Akeshi has focused on, they want to make really, really full-bodied, smoky, peaty whiskeys in the Scottish style. Right. So they're going to be quite different than Japanese whiskeys. Most Japanese mm-hmm. distilleries make a very light, fruity, easy drinking style, goes great with soda, that sort of thing. Akeshi's going in the other direction. So they're zigging when everybody else has zagged. And then Shizuoka in 2017 opened. They're a funny company. Their company name is actually Gaia Flow. They were an energy company. Hmm. And the owner of the company went to Scotland, did distillery tours, and came back and repurposed his company to make whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) It's a new type of energy. Yep. And so he ended up buying up. Uh, a lot of the old Karuizawa distillery equipment at auction. Some of it wasn't uh, useful anymore, but he's got it on display. And then he ended up importing some Scottish equipment as well. And that distillery is completely built for visitors. Like it's got glass windows on a second floor walkway so you can see the entire production process without interrupting Hmm. the workers and that sort of thing. So I really look forward to visiting them at some point once uh, travel is easier to do. Um, And then the, the two most recent distilleries, at least that I'm aware of, uh, both opened in Kagoshima, which is is where most emo shochu is made, most sweet potato shochu is made. And that's Mars who opened the Tsunuki distillery. Now, they've been distilling on that site for, for decades. Forever, yeah. Uh, yeah, they were making korui shochu, which we talked about a few episodes ago, that multiply distilled style. In fact, that's how Mars made their name. That's how Hombo became wealthy, was becoming the biggest selling multiply distilled shochu producer in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then the final one, which opened in 2018, that's Kanosuke in Kagoshima, uh, which is from Komasa Distillery, Komasa Jozo, which is a uh, well-known maker of both barrel-aged rice shochu and uh, sweet potato shochu. So lots, lots of reason for optimism. Absolutely. And I have to admit, I am actually drinking along with you. I'm, I'm actually sipping some... Um, Kanosuke's neat right now in a in a little glass. I've got some of their, I've got a sample of their newborn. It's now thirty four months old. It's not technically whiskey for another two months. Well, if it had stayed in the barrel for two more months, fifty eight percent American white oak. It's it's re- this is really this is going to be an amazing malt whiskey. I think it's you know got the brininess from the sea. But it's also got a an excellent balance to it, and a, a bunch of the the notes that you might ex- expect. Fifty eight percent. It is not on the nose. It's it's very very. Oh, it's this is going to be a beauty, I think, and I'm really excited for what Kanosuke has planned for the future. And they're just getting started. Beautiful facility too, and uh, again, they're the folks who are behind the Hioki Shochu Distillery also in in, um, that part of town, which is over on the west side of Kagoshima Prefecture. You're right. It is a beautiful distillery. I actually haven't been since they opened. I got a a little private tour uh, 
one year when I was working at Yamato Zakura, I guess it was probably in 2016 before they officially opened in 2017, uh, because Komasa-san and Tekkan-san are friends. And so we got a tour of the facility before they were actually making anything. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to go back. I'd love to visit their tasting room, get the tour, try some of their new products. I'm super jealous that you're getting to try that because I've <laughs> I don't think I've had anything that they've made yet. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that. But <laughs> well, yeah, this one. Hopefully, on my next trip, I'll get to try something. Maybe a little bit on the level of contraband. I'm not. I'm not sure they want me talking about this, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it is. It is good. I, I can say just from this 34 months old sip that I'm trying right now, it's it's no joke. They they know what they're doing, and I think they're going to make some serious waves moving forward. Uh, that's yeah, and I I you know we know that there are other distilleries coming on online as well there are other whiskey licenses that have been right uh issued and they're just in the process of building out the distilleries and so maybe we'll mm-hmm. hold that back for a future episode and talk about what we can expect from from those companies in the future yeah um yeah but i mean i think there's a lot of optimism for japanese whiskey i think the fact that there are many more suppliers now you're going to have a lot more japanese whiskey available mm-hmm it sounds like people are really excited about what's coming out of particularly Shizuoka and uh, Kanosuke. Yeah, in Ka- now I'm sure, I'm sure for some of those other distilleries, we don't yet know what their expressions will be like or what they're going to grow into or what styles they'll make for sure. But obviously, I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting whiskeys coming out with known provenance, which is giving you a teaser yeah. for uh, the next episode. <laughs> That there's right. a lot of Japanese whiskey that we don't know where it's from, and sure. it's that's to me the risk is if if uh, I guess this is a little bit of a teaser for the next episode. If people start to doubt the authenticity of Japanese whiskey, then that's where where things can go a little bit sideways. But we'll save that for next time. Yeah, the whole thing goes down in flames. Absolutely, um, but you know, as we talked about on the rum episode a, a couple shows back, I think that. One thing that this all of these new outfits have going for them is that, well, not all of them, but several of them do have a long history of distillation, some of them also with sake production. And so they're not necessarily starting from scratch. They have very, very generations old. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of years of experience of building very, very robust fermentations in a subtropical climate. Plus, their experience with very interesting and very difficult to use uh, distillation technology, especially in the form of only distilling once Mm -hmm. in a pot still. So they're very good at making delicious fermentations that obviously, if you're going to distill them twice or if you're going to be barrel aging them, you got a lot more room for messing around, I guess is what we can say. And so I have a lot of confidence in especially a couple of the the distilleries that you talked about at the end there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to really impress us with what they're able to come up with. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, I don't want to put any pressure on Komasa-san, but I won't be surprised <laughs> if I hear that he's won, you know, best single malt. And it's actually, it's 100% domestic Japanese malt, you know, which I know he's working on right now. Mm-hmm. I, I won't be surprised to hear that. And I'll be thrilled. And I can't wait to uh, come pie with him over that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's a lot to look forward to 
and I guess we'll save all of the buyer bewares for for next episode. We'll, <laughs> this has been a pretty pretty high note episode, and I guess next next time will be a little bit of a a low note episode. But you know, you'll need more to <laughs> those listening will need to drink a little bit more while they're <laughs> trying to pay attention. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, episode number two in the can. I like it. Well, thank you everybody out there for listening to this second episode of the. Japanese Whiskey Origins Trilogy. And if you're interested in learning more about the world of Japanese whiskey, you will definitely want to pick up a copy of Stephen's book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, which also covers lots of other Japanese alcohol traditions, including sake and, of course, awamori and shochu. I would also recommend Brian Ashcraft's book, which is also published by Tuttle. It's called Japanese Whiskey. Both of these books are available on Amazon, of course, as well as, I hope, through your local bookseller. And if they are not, then you should do something to change that. Also, please tune in every week to our Show Tuesday Instagram Live on my Instagram feed, which you can find at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Pellegrini is P-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-N-I. And then if you're if Twitter's more your jam, then you can find me at Chris Pellegrini on that plat- platform. Uh, Steven, how about you? Yep. As always, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at shochu underscore danji, D-A-N-J-I. And I've also become the person behind the Japan Distilled Instagram and Twitter accounts. So if you reach out to me there as well, I'm happy to talk to you. And uh, as far as additional reading, I would like to recommend The Outstanding Whiskey Rising by Stefan Van Eyken. It's truly a magnificent book. Oh, yeah. And I think we could do 30 episodes just going through his book chapter by chapter, uh, which maybe we'll do at some point in the future oh, sure. if he doesn't mind. Uh, but yeah, great book. And uh, as always, we're happy to communicate uh, through social media. We love talking about these drinks. If you have any questions, please reach out to us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. If so, please rate or review us on your favorite podcast listening app. And we'll be back in your feed very soon with our next episode. So this has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Our audio engineering is completely done in his home by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please be sure to check that podcast out as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. So from both of us here in Japan to all of you, wherever you happen to be in the world, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. <laughs>